the lecture you're about to hear is actually from 2018. My recorder messed up, so you're hearing an old one, but the content's roughly the same. And without further ado, enjoy. This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606, Brain and Behavior. Hope you enjoy it. So today, uh, probably next time too, we're going to get the, whoops, what am I doing? We're going to do a talk about neural communication, um, basically within each neuron, and not sort of between neurons, that's the next section. I want to I want to get this stuff done for sure for the because you have a test on the 17th, right? So the test on the 17th will definitely I want to have this stuff all done. We'll probably do on the Monday after what's the Monday? There is no Monday. No, of course there's a Monday. That's the next after whatever. You know what I mean. So on the Monday. There's no, there's no Monday class. Next week is a Thanksgiving. Like there's a whole break there. So on the Monday, that would be the 15th. Yeah. We'll um, probably do review that. We may do a couple things to get some stuff in there, but then we'll just move so you can have a question and answer uh, for your test on Wednesday. All right. So it's pretty clear early on um, in... Jeez. We're talking the 16th century, 17th century. That electricity played a role in neural communication. In fact, people were interested generally in electricity as far as a um, a way of. It was obvious you could probably use it for some sort of communication, and it was pretty obvious that it existed in bodies. It was obvious that there was communication in the nervous system. Or sorry, in bodies, we don't, let's say maybe even like back in the 1600s, we don't know what the say. But there's sort of two general, what's the word I'm looking for, I guess, methods people thought that how, how, how say your brain could control your body. One of them was something kind of hydraulic, like Descartes thought, which is this notion that basically it's fluids, because there's bodies full of fluids. Remember, medicine doesn't become anything that actually really works until like the late 1800s. Um, before that, it's just make him bleed. Just bleed him some. That'll work. Just make him bleed. He's probably got an imbalance of bodily fluids. He, doesn't have, he has too much blood. Seriously. So it's either some sort of fluid mechanism or maybe electricity because people don't discovered electricity. They hadn't harnessed it so there was no, you know, it wasn't electric lights, electric power, but People have discovered electricity. Okay. So Galvani, you might have heard of the galvanic skin response. That's when you measure uh, skin conductance, right? And that's how a polygraph works. So Galvani lived from 1737 to 1798. Italian guy. And he was interested in... He was one of the people that said, you know what, it must be, it's got to be electricity. He was right. 
not completely electricity, but we know now within neurons, it's, well, it's neurochemical, it's called that, so it's neuroelectric maybe. Um, so what he does is he hooks up a frog. Now, look, it's the 1700s. There weren't ethics panels. Don't get all upset with me. So he's got a frog, and it's got its leg because the frog's alive. An anesthetic wasn't invented yet. Again, it was a long time ago. Worst things happened in history. He's got this frog leg hooked up to a, 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 a I guess we call it an electrode today, that's hooked up to a, uh, you know, a lightning rod, <laughs> as you do. And the idea then is to get a zap of electricity, because there's electricity in there. Again, we haven't harnessed electricity. It's not like we have, they, these guys had batteries. If you had a battery, would you use a battery? They knew electricity was in the air, lightning. So he waits for either a rainstorm or even just a static electricity in the air before a rainstorm, you're going to get sparks. Has it hooked up? You get a zap of electricity and the frog blades move. Frog blades moves. Wow. It may not be pretty, it may not be nice, but it worked. So it seemed pretty clear that. And this, again, back in the 1700s, that electricity was important. Um, one of the things that Hewlings Jackson, remember we talked about, talked about Hewlings Jackson. This is this, the said hierarchical and parallel nervous system. He saw people that were having seizures, and they would have what he eventually termed the Jacksonian March, which is, you know, if you're going to name something after yourself, if you put your own name in, you're going to name something. I'm going to call it the Jacksonian. He's not going to call it Smith's March. So what happens is he sees seizures start, and he sees it move, that's why it's a march, move along different parts of the body. Today we'd say it moves along from the different dermatomes, right? We, we know about that now. We know that then. But he saw that it moved slowly, like it wasn't immediate. <coughs> so it's not like everything's all hooked up at once. It's hooked up, well, it's hierarchical in that case, right? So he sees this and says, okay, that tells me that things move through the nervous system. Now, he's into the 1800s. Okay. He lives into the 1900s, actually. Uh, Fritz and Hitz, Fritsch and Hitzig, sorry. Um, took a lot of different animals, cats, uh, dogs, mostly, things like that. And they would stimulate their cortex. So you take a, a, an electrode. And now these guys have batteries at this point. They are great batteries, but they got batteries. And they hook an electrode up onto the cortex, just on the surface, or you can go deeper if you'd like. And they would stimulate the cortex, and they'd get movement, little twitches in non-humans. Now, John, I think was his name? Bartholow and Mary Raffer. Bartholow was thought of as a, an important figure in the history of behavioral neuroscience, and he is, except that he should be rem remembered, unlike these other guys, because by the time he did things, we had ethics. <laughs> um, this is, geez, Columbus, Ohio, uh, after the Civil War in the States, late 1800s. He's got a patient named Mary Rafferty. And Mary Rafferty has a, um, 
Well, she, she had, not had, she's dead. Long, dead, <coughs> like, she was 1800s. Um, she had bone cancer on her skull. So what do you do? You take it off. That's what you do. We do that today, but then there'd be radiation, then there'd be chemo, and maybe you could do something about it. Back then, they didn't have those things. So you just took that off. Now, today, what you would do in that case is you would, you would replace that bit of skull until it grew back with a piece of uh, plastic, basically. It's a piece of, you'd use resin. They didn't have that, so she had her exposed brain at all the time. So she had a hole in her head, uh, and so she wore a hat or a scarf all the time. So, okay, that's kind of like, wow, that's a crazy story. It's true. Um, <clears throat> the only upside of this was she was able to go around saying, I need that like I need another hole in my head. And then people would go, and then they'd feel uncomfortable. So, now, okay, now what, what, what Barthlow does is he, uh, I shouldn't laugh because it's sad, but he, take, he uses her as a, an experimental subject, and he starts using, like, doing like what Fritch and Hitzig are doing. And he little zaps of like, and she's moving around. Sensing, getting sensations. Now, the thing about this is, this is a patient, right? This is a doctor-patient relationship. This is not something that... She's not getting anything out of this, <laughs> okay? There's nothing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, um, good? <laughs> There's no clinical reason to do this, right? There's no diagnostic thing to do this. There's no, nothing at all. What, he, what she has here, what he has here is a research subject. It's, now, you might think, again, this is the 1800s, different time. Well, in fact, it turns out that um, he was sanctioned by the American Medical Association and had his license removed. So, revoked. So, I mean, this is the 1800s. People said, that you can't do that. That's not a thing. He ended up getting a job at the University of Maryland, which really bothers me. <laughs> um, but it does tell us something, and the something it tells us is that electrical activity is important to <coughs> the brain. And just like Fritch and Hitzig did, it allows us to uh, see that different parts of the brain control different, say, movements, etc. It's still pretty unethical. See, the difference here with Penfield, Penfield, Wilder Penfield, who was a Canadian uh, neurosurgeon. Um, I've told you about Donald Hebb before and the importance of him in history of cognitive neuroscience. Uh, Hebb uh, was at, in Montreal at the Montreal Neurological Institute. The psychology building at McGill is called the Hebb Building. And it's on uh, Rue Dr. Penfield, the streets named after Penfield. Because Penfield's pretty important, too. We're really good at this psychology brain thing. I, Canadians really, we're, we're punching well above our weight on this. Um, Penfield did this kind of thing, so he was doing it clinically. So people would come and they would usually have seizures uh, and they'd come to Penfield's <coughs> clinic and he would, the Montreal Neurological Institute, and he would operate on them and you're awake and you're almost always awake during neurosurgery, you have to be. Uh, it's safer if you're awake, basically. You're drugged up at a level that's you don't remember it. Like, it's like you're really, really, really drunk, but you're awake. 
Right? They want to make sure that something bad doesn't happen. And the best way to do that is have the person awake. So let's say you have a certain sensation before you have your tumor. Or sorry, your, 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 your um, seizure. It's probably from a tumor then. Want to find the tumor is. Now what we do today, we put you in an MRI, uh, they'd know in 25 minutes, half an hour, where your tumor is exactly, and they go in and they take it out. It's a lot of, but this was, we're talking early part of last century, so 1920s, 1930. So what Penfield would do is he would have, he would cut your person's skull off with a saw while you're awake, and you get a local anesthetic. And happily you don't remember it because you're so drugged up. And then you're just supposed to, but you can answer questions. So do you smell anything? There's a classic thing, an old uh, Canadian Heritage Minute, which you sometimes see late at night because they don't have any more commercials to show. And that's um, uh, those little history vignettes. Uh, used to see them on the History Channel, but now the History Channel is just ice road truckers and pawn stars. I guess it's the History Channel in that the stuff happened in the past, just the very recent past that it was filmed. So you go in. Zap with electricity, and then the woman says in the, in the, in the thing, she always smells her coast before she has a seizure. And the woman says, Dr. Penfield, I smell burnt toast. In this very strange accent, but I can't figure out what ethnicity it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be generally not offensively not English. <laughs> seriously, that little accent is this woman's doing. Um, so it's like, we can't, no one can say, that. you're not doing my accent right, because like, no one knows what accent it is. It's a very odd, like, you can find it, find it on YouTube. Uh, and then, so, so, and then he goes, okay, now I know where the tumor is, and now we can go in and take it out. So Penfield was doing this clinically. There was a reason for, it was a diagnostic measure. Now the thing is, he took notes, as one would. So he took notes about his, when he went to certain parts of the brain, what happened? Right? And then so this part does this. So he mapped the sensory and motor systems. He also, a lot of sens sensation stuff, so when I mean sensory, like by touch, but also by uh, things like, say, say, smell. You know, in a lot of textbooks, they'll say that he found memories, that we jog memories. Apparently, and I'm not going to do this, but if one goes back and reads Penfield's notes, he doesn't make as much of this as people think he did. Now and then, people would have memories, but it was really rare. But the important thing is here now, now we're using it here. This isn't just being for fun and profit. Like that's, I'm sure that's what Bartholomew's doing. Remember her name. Screw him. But Penfield, Wilder Penfield, great Canadian, but also great neurosurgeon and important in the history of cognitive neuroscience because he was finding out that it's got to be electricity and different parts of everybody was wired up the same. It was one of the key things he found because he's got lots of patients. Okay. All right, so there's, this is an artist rendering of the frog hooked up to a lightning rod. See, it's a complete circuit. I like the fact that this looks like it's probably taking place. Well, it could be an evil scientist's <laughs> lair of some sort. However, there's a nice little gazebo affair here, which I think is quite pleasant, where you can sit there, sip wine, and watch the frog do this. You know, it's, it's a little weird. They didn't have TV. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have TV. Because as we know from TV, when the frog wakes up, it starts singing. <laughs> true. True story. And every, it only works for Galvani, and every time anybody is aware of it, you guys know that episode, right? 
You know, that was made before World War II or something like that. It's still talked about today, which is, I think, excellent. All right. So let's move into measuring this electrical activity. So we know that today we use an electroencephalogram and EEG to measure electrical activity. Richard Caton, he was from Liverpool. I think he was Scottish, but lived in Liverpool or Liverpool lived in Scotland. One or the other. 1842, 1926. So he lives into last century, early last century, the century that most of us were born in. By somebody here that was born in 2000, which is weird. It's just weird, okay? The guy just made the Montreal Canadiens get Spurry Kotkaniemi, and he's 18 years and four months old. He's six months older than my son. Weird to me. So what Katon is doing is he's, I think it's pronounced Katon, Katon. He's from Liverpool, so he talks like Paul McCartney. And I live with like Paul McCartney, I'm impression, it's not very good. So what he's doing is he sees the stuff that Rich and Hickson are doing, and he decides he wants to measure this in wants to measure the electrical activity in different uh, animal species. So he's got to find um, a neuron he can isolate. And that's not an easy thing to do in the 1870s. Today you can do it because uh, the mic microscopy is much better. He couldn't do it. Um, Helmholtz, you may have heard of from color vision, all kinds of other things. He measures this uh, in a frog muscle. He measures, uh, in a frog muscle, measures the speed of nervous transmission, says it's between 20 and 40 uh, meters per second. It's probably a little slower than that, but that's the measurement he gets. Now, Hodgkins and Huxley, that's Hodgkins from, you know, Hodgkins disease, not Hodgkins lymphoma, so really bad things, but also good things. He did something really cool with axons in giant squid. Giant squid are interesting animals because they're really big, but they're also, um, they don't have myelin, so they have these really, remember I said that myelin increases con uh, conductance of, uh, or speed of conduction of, of nervous energy, uh, of electricity. But it also, uh, if you don't have myelin, you want a really long axon. And these things have axons that are measured in meters. And you can take one out, and they're very simple animals. So within a squeeze, you take a look and say, okay, there's one, and they can measure that. So they use microelectrodes, oscilloscopes, and they measure the resting potential of the neuron. They measure it at minus 70 millivolts. Um, they then develop a, a series of uh, a couple of differential equations that actually describe the resting and action potential of those, which is pretty cool. And Huxley, that's one of the Huxley family, the famous British uh, intellectuals, everything from, you know, writing Brave New World to uh, hanging out with Charles Darwin. These are important people. These are pretty educated folks, pretty influential in the history of the UK. So it's negative 70 millivolts. Now, eventually, alpha waves, so we'll get, that's within, a, nervous, uh, within a, a neuron. Also, we can take... on the surface of the brain, what? You can put electrodes just on the surface and measure 
charge, you can, and you get a wave. It's called an alpha wave. And you can actually do it on the surface of the cell. You don't even need to open somebody up. Um, and you, you can do that. You can actually build one of those, a really not a very good one, but you can build one that could measure it yourself. It's not hard to do. Uh, George Townsend, Dr. Townsend in computer science uses uh, EEGs, does brain-computer interface work. So you, you put on an EEG cap, and then you move a cursor around the screen by thinking about it. It's pretty cool. Uh, and when uh, Bergen discovers the theta wave, the alpha wave, I'm sorry, that's in what, 26, is that right, I think? 29. He actually cites Katon. Katon was forgotten for a long time. But then he, when, 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 he mentioned, he, when, when uh, Bergen sort of mentions or discovers this, he says, you know, you should go back and read his stuff. So he gets some credit. All right. So within a neuron... With this single neuron, and this doesn't matter whose neuron it is, any of us, us being animals, so just, not just all of you are humans, being animals, the resting potential of the neuron, while it's at rest, that's why I don't like the term resting potential, because it's not resting, really, it's just not firing, uh, is negative 70 millivolts. So there's a charge across the cell membrane. So even when your brain, when, when neurons aren't firing, they're still working. So while neurons are kind of on or off, the off isn't the same as the off in a light switch. Kind of partly where the sort of idea of you only use ten percent of your brain comes from, because if you look at a scan, when you see where firing is happening, where activity is happening, we measure activity typically by firing. So if you look at a brain scan, you think, well, only one little part's lit up; the rest of nothing's happening. Yeah, but it's all being held here, ready to fire. Now, the way this is done is certain ions are kept out, and others are allowed into the cell. An ion is, and I'm just going to, because every year I say, does anybody not know what a nion is? And then someone finally goes, I don't know. And then they feel bad. An ion. Remember electrons and protons? Remember those? Right? Some of you can go to sleep now. Um, sometimes a, 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 an atom will give up an electron. So if it gives up an electron, it now is a positive ion. Because it has one more electron than it has sorry, one fewer electron than it has protons, right? So something like if sodium gives up an electron, it becomes Na plus or potassium. Sometimes you'll take on an extra electron. So that's, chlorine does that. Okay, so now it's not an atom, it's an ion. So if you selectively allow, you, you push sodium out, which is a positive ion, and you have more positive outside than inside, you have a, neg a net negative charge across the membrane. Okay. With stimulation of the neuron, sodium is allowed in. When sodium comes in the neuron, 
Now you have more positive inside than outside, and you have a net, or, well, yes, for now we'll say that, and then you have a net positive charge. You'll see in a second that I was just oversimplifying that. But. So that's a resting potential. Negative 70, negative 70, but it hits about negative 50. Yeah, maybe even a little less than that. The negative charge collapses, and you get a, suddenly get a positive. And the changes in one area of a neuron lead to changes in another area of a neuron. So it's pretty cool because it's chemical to electrical. It's an electrochemical process. I think that's really neat. Maybe you don't. That's fine. I think it's very cool. And it works like this again in a giant squid or a human, which is also cool. They're just animals. I mean, we're pretty interesting. Questions so far? You probably know this. You probably learned this in intro psych or somewhere, but that's okay. You have questions. I want you to ask. How does this happen? The sodium-potassium pump is what's changing. It's working. Look. Animated gift. And you thought animated GIFs were stupid. Me too. They have their uses. So this thing called a sodium-potassium pump takes, uses what's called active transport. You get passive transport across a membrane. That's when you just get through diffusion. You get uh, things will move across a membrane. In this case, this is inside. we got three sodium ions. Don't worry about the transport protein, which then Open up the pump. Three potassiums, or sorry, sodiums leave, and two sodiums, two, two potassiums are brought in. So it's not like it's bringing in chlorine or something. The sodium potassium pump is working all on positive ions, but it's a three to two ratio. So you end up with <coughs> once this is done again, more positives outside than inside, which leads to a net negative charge across the membrane. Does that make sense? Okay. I tried to find a cool electron microscope picture of a sodium potassium pump. I haven't been able to. I'll show you something in a second, which is even cooler, but it's weird that I can't. They all look like that. There are various versions of that, so I'm just going to go like with this. But they all, I just get drawings. Anything useful in it. So it's active transport. Why not just have the, why not, why not just have it at zero? Why not just have it off? This is taking a lot of energy, as you can probably imagine. Does this lead to easier encoding of things? I don't see why it necessarily leads to easier, this is what some people say, to lead easier encoding of different states. Um, does it lead to faster reactions? Almost certainly. When you think about it, a, a neuron at, quote, rest isn't resting. It's like a bow that's drawn. It's not shooting any arrows, but that takes a lot of energy. Right? So it's ready to go, and I move it away from my ear. My wife has a bow. She has to use. It's a weird thing to have in your house. It's cool. Right? Sometimes we go down to the gun club there, I don't know. 
fourth or fifth or twelfth line or whatever the hell it is. Maybe those shooting arrows. A weird. My wife and daughter did bow and arrow, the archery for a while. Did bow and arrow. It's called archery. <laughs> Wanna do bow and arrow? <laughs> and that's where you find out. That's, I like this analogy because unlike, say, even a, a, a gun that's cocked and ready to be fired, it doesn't take any physical energy to do this. If you've ever fired a, a, an arrow from a bow, it, that's a lot of energy being taken to hold the arrow back. Right? It really is. That's what's happening here. So you get very fast reactions. So it's not like neurons are off. They're not firing. It's kind of like your Xbox isn't turned all the way off. It's just on standby mode. But that's not a very good analogy. The bow's bad. So an action potential happens when stimulation causes the pumps to stop. Sodium and a positive gets in and K positive goes out. So suddenly we go from a negative to a localized positive charge. But it's only localized. You gotta understand too, it's not like there's one of these on each side. There are thousands of them. And there aren't only there isn't only sodium potassium pumps on neurons. There are other kinds of and a lot of biology students know this on other kinds of cells as well. But let's worry about them in neurons. Oops. Before I go back, before I say that though, let's just pull this back up. Come in. Okay. Good. Questions about this? That makes sense? What was that red diagram? Oh, that's a transport protein. Uh, what it's doing. I don't have to worry too much about that, but what it's doing. Starts to work. Let's see. Okay, it's a signaling. Will you just start? Okay, thank you. Okay. When it detects, there's a. Once three sodium ions bind onto this, the side of the, the, the sodium potassium pump, this, uh, it sends a signal to this protein to come and bind up here temporarily and open the pump. So don't worry about it. What it does is I would worry about it. Okay. Other questions? That's a good question. Okay, so we're good? Yeah? All right. So what's going to happen then is at just at the next synapse, so when there's... When sodium's been allowed through, and that's, it gets, it, 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 that happens when a neurotransmitter molecule binds to what's called a receptor site, and we'll talk about that when we talk about synapses and transmitters. But what you get at the, uh, the postsynaptic membrane, so you get at the next, uh, well, the next cell, the cell we're interested in, on the dendrite, is excitation or inhibition. Excitation is going to be closer, is more positive, inhibition is more negative. And remember, the positive and negative here just tells you about the charge. It doesn't tell you about the strength. That's what the number tells you. So you can get excitatory postsynaptic potentials when you're getting closer to zero. 
it's not going to be positive. Okay? It's not ever going to be positive there. But it's going to be closer to zero. So it's not going to be negative 70, it might be negative 60, negative 50. An inhibitory um, postsynaptic potential would be when you get something that's more negative. Here it goes up to negative 80, negative 90. Now remember, the cell's constantly trying to get it back to negative 70. The cell wants to be at negative 70. That's where a neuron, it's a, it's, ha it's a happy place. It wants to live there. Okay? So how would we get so excitatory postsynaptic potentials, we're going to let sodium in locally. But the pumps are going to start try to pump it out. Okay. How would we get inhibitory postsynaptic potentials? How would you get an inhibitory postsynaptic potential? How would you get an inhibitory postsynaptic potential? You'd let chlorine ions in. Okay? So chlorine comes in. Through a different process, the chlorine is going to be removed. It's not worry about what that is. So what we get here, when we're integrating, we being our nervous systems, and we being people or squid or nematodes or Sasquatch. Loch Ness Monster? Okay, uh, chickens. So we get temporal or spatial summation. And I talked about this the other day, but I don't talk about it today again. Find the eraser. Those that before. Um, no, forget it. So let's just think of one dendrite, not even one cell, but we'll think just of one dendrite. And looks like that, sort of. It's awful. <laughs> so we will have excitatory and inhibitory, perhaps, postsynaptic potentials here. So we're going to have a synapse. We'll have one on each of these little dendritic spines, okay? So let's say here we've got a dopamine synapse and a dopamine synapse, and we'll have a dopamine synapse here, and we'll have a GABA synapse here, and a GABA synapse here, and a dopamine here, and a GABA here. Now the thing about GABA is that it lets in chlorine. GABA is inhibitory. So when a, when a GABA molecule, which is a neurotransmitter GABA, again, mutaric acid, we'll talk more about that, it's neurotransmitter. But when it binds with a binding site, it then opens up what's called an ion channel. And that ion channel for GABA specifically allows chlorine into the neuron. So it's going to be always a negative. Dopamine allows sodium in.
And remember, a human cortical neuron, we're talking maybe 10,000 synapses. This is happening all the time. Typically, a neuron will have one kind of inhibitory neurotransmitter or one kind of excitatory neurotransmitter. It doesn't happen, but typically that's the So if only the, the neuron that's synapsing here, okay? If only this one here is, is uh, so the bottom right here, I guess. If we only have uh, stimulation there and nowhere else, this neuron, because this now connects, there's a whole bunch, there's dendrites all over the place, and then the cell body is, I don't know, the whole classroom. Um, it's, we're probably not going to get firing, right? We'll get an excitatory postsynaptic potential. We'll get some sodium coming in. Now, once that's happened, there's sodium and potassium bumps there. Here, 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 and all over the place. And they're going to try to pump that sodium out. Okay? That's their job. They have one job, and they do it well. So we'll get an excitatory postsynaptic potential, but we're not going to get fired. Make sense? Yes? Okay. Now, let's say we get firing here, too. I don't know why I'm just letting in four sodium ions, but let's just say that happens. If that they happen, they're right beside each other. Right? These are right beside each other. And you got to understand here, we're going to measure this in micrometers. Like, it's a very small distance. So if they're happening right beside each other, it makes it harder for these sodium potassium pumps to keep working. They're using a lot of energy because they're all right in the same area. What do they run on? What does what your whole cell run on? What do all your cells run on? So that's what A, ATP, thank you. Cells run on ATP. Where does ATP come from? In mitochondria. So, You only have so many mitochondria, which are like little power plants in the cell. And glucose gets turned into ATP, right? What's that called? Anybody? The what cycle? The Krebs cycle? Okay, so that happens in there. Maybe there's not enough ATP to keep going because it's happening right at the same place. There's only so much ATP around. Next thing you know, so that's what we call that spatial summation. It's happening roughly at the same place. They sum together. Now these damn sodium potassium pumps here, they can't, they shut down. These shut down. Now next thing you know, we got freaking sodium everywhere. It's getting all sodium in here. Damn ion channels open, sodium's rushing in. Uh-oh. Well, not uh-oh, maybe the thing's going to fire. By the way, that may not be enough. There's also sodium, potassium pumps. Hold on. And they're going to try to pump all this out.
Crepe cycle again. I'm lost. I'm not really a cell physiologist. Anyway. Another guy whose dad found the Krebs cycle. He named Krebs. He's also a biologist. John Krebs. He's also a famous biologist. And I said to him, you know, if I was my dad and what I know about Krebs, I wouldn't go into that same field. <laughs> Do something different, man. Be biology. I'd become a race car driver. I mentioned actually when I said yeah, I'd be a NASCAR driver. English, he goes, what is NASCAR? Do? It's like Formula One, except the shitty cars, they only go in one direction. Oh, yes, very good. That's temporal summation. Sorry, spatial summation. Temporal, it's going to happen at the same time, too. At the same time, roughly. Because look, this is all happening. We're going to measure this in milliseconds. So this happens, if these are pretty close in time as well as space, Temporal spatial. We're not going to get fired. Now the thing is, I haven't even thought about these. Well, we got these gamma synapses, and maybe they're going to let in some chlorine. Uh-oh, now it makes it positives cancel the negative. Right? Now the cell isn't so negatively charged. Oh, sorry, it's getting so positively charged anymore. Again, this is all still around, it's still negative. So this is how information is integrated in your nervous system. Okay. Pretty cool. Hmm. Sorry, I just got a notification, but it's about sports, so I'm not going to share it. You don't have to share it with you. It's not like something weird happened in the news that you should know about. Probably not a hockey fan, so I'll leave it. Your loss. All right. Questions about this, though. Does this make sense? So it's like a vote is happening. It's like a vote is happening. All the time. Bazillions of times. There's a lot of neurons in here, and that's happening all the time. And they're constantly voting, basically, should we fire or not. I always imagine... Because uh, I a, a, a grew up in the, I mean, my first memories are from late 1960s, so I, I think about the space race. I know you guys don't, but I don't care. <laughs> and I think about all those NASA engineers sitting in front of these great big terminals, uh, all with crew cuts and almost all men. Um, not that I think that's a good thing, but that's what I wanted. And they would always go around and they'd vote. And they'd say, go or no go. And they'd say, go for this, go for that. And eventually, if enough goes happen, the rocket goes to the moon, <clears throat> which was the cool. It was so neat seeing guys actually walk on the moon going, yeah, we're on the moon. This is on TV. We're actually on the moon. Everybody else sucks because I'm on the moon. That's what I'd be saying the whole time. And I'd be getting the astronaut for But, and by the way, all those guys in that, all those engineers, they're all smoking the whole time. Go. Line up another one. It's a different time. So I always think of it like that. It's like they're voting. I love this diagram. The axon hillock is where the axon meets the solenoid. So, so here's your post, see, excitatory postsynaptic potentials. 
your threshold's going to be about negative 50. So when it hits negative 50, the cell fires. You suddenly get, and you can see here on this cell, we're talking about a little over positive 30. So what, this, what I like about this picture is it not only shows over time, and it's not giving you actual units of time, but it's showing both from the left to the right. These excitatory postsynaptic potentials are happening. So the axial hillock is where the And there's a lot of voltage-sensitive channels here. So they're um, calcium channels. What they're detecting is the flow of calcium, and those are also ions. And what happens is there's a mechanism that's comparing uh, the calcium flow, with the, amount of, like, the charge and the amount of calcium you have in your cerebral spinal fluid, extracellular fluid, to the charge inside the neuron. And there's lots of those right at the axon hillock because that's what's making the decision. So you need about minus 50 millivolts. As you can see here, yeah, minus 50 is here. For what we call depolarization. Suddenly the sodium potassium pumps quit. Sodium's rushing in. Then all this, the calcium, these calcium channels open, calcium rushes in and the positive charge runs down the membrane, runs down the axon. So not all of these graded potentials, these excitatory and inhibitory, this one has inhibitory, doesn't have any inhibitory postsynaptic potentials, they're not all created equally. So in other words, if they're not at the same time, or the same space, temporal spatial summation, they may not cause firing at all. So to give you an idea about the sodium-potassium pumps, on the cell body, for every one square nanometer, there's a, this is on average, a sodium-potassium pump. At the axon hillock, there are 100 per square nanometer. Yes, these things are pretty small. And at the nodes of Romulin, between these, remember here between the, yeah. Myelin right here, guess what? Nothing can pass through there. So sodium isn't passing through there. So the charge, in essence, doesn't have to be kept up along here. Just along here. There are a thousand per square nanometer at the nodes of Ronvier. A thousand sodium potassium pumps. Pretty amazing. Now, it could be, for example, so this is just showing positive excitatory postsynaptic potentials, but you could draw a similar diagram if it was negative. It would be negative, and they'd be kept negative, but it tries to get back to zero. Okay? So I was trying to get back to zero. It's not bad for doing that with my stubby little finger. So the other thing is that not, it's not just that the charge is going in our diagram, from the left to the right. There's no up or down, there's no left and right, but in the diagram, left to right. 
Okay? It's not just doing that. We also get something called neural backpropagation. So the charge now doesn't just go forward and to the right. We also get the charge spreading back into the left. It's called neural backpropagation. What's the function of neural backpropagation? It's probably signaling to the original neurons. Which then maybe gets them to fire again. It's a feedback. Back into the left. JFK, nobody? No? Well, before you were all born. Also, Seinfeld episode. So we're going to have the charge propagating backwards. Interesting thing is that originally this was discovered. People figured this must happen because you can use. Okay. fragments. Okay. We can talk about neural networks when we talk about neuroscience. We can just talk about actual neural networks. Or you can also, there's neural, neural network models that in computer program. Okay? Now, the cool thing is, you can do neural network modeling and literally know nothing about neurons if you're a computer programmer. You just set up these network models. Uh, I know a guy who designs uh, traffic light control systems. That's what he does. He uses a neural network, so basically he, the computer learns traffic light. We used to work here years ago. I asked him once, be able to come talk to my class. He said, but they all know more about brains than I do. I don't know anything. I know about computers. He's a software chip. The thing is, in neural network modeling, when people first started using neural network computing, they said, you know, why don't we have stuff feeding back? So actually, the idea for this, they said, well, let's do that. We'll, have, we'll call it a neural back propagation algorithm. And it turns out, the fact that, and then people went, you know, we should probably look to see if that happens in neurons. Look, it does. Pretty cool. Try that with PowerPoint. Draw pictures like that. Questions about that? Axon Hill at the last. Good? So how are we going to measure from a single this is neat. I this this is my favorite part. I have favorite parts of all my lectures. I like this part. So you have what's called a patch clamp. You can measure from a single ion chip. So what a patch clamp is, is a micro pipette, which many of you, biology students for sure, have worked with a pipette, right? This is such a small one that um, you can fit into an ion channel. So you would probably guess don't do that by hand. Because <laughs> you'll break it. Because it's, no. So you have an electrode in the extracellular fluid, and then you've got the patch clamp attached to an ion channel, and now you can measure how many ions are on the neuron. So there's a patch clamp right there. It's made of glass. See, that's two micrometers. <laughs> it's not very big. I wonder how much they cost. Now I want to know. Someone look it up. Look up patch clamp cost brain. Just find out while I keep talking. And tell me what much they cost. You probably have to order a lot of them. Because two micrometers is pretty small. 
Okay, there's a, 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 that's a patch clamp. That's a human hair. To give you an idea of how thin these things are. Electromicroscopy is great. The downside, of course, first of all, you find out that your hair is kind of gross and crusty. And you also find out things like there's mites living in your eyebrows, things you don't really want to know. And believe me, in everyone. They all get itchy, and I think it's funny. Um, Anybody find out the cost of a patch clamp yet? No? I think $30,000 microscope. <laughs> that's not just for one. Yeah, but that's the thing. So you see, you don't screw around with these things. Yeah, without the microscope. That's a because he. Wow. Okay. Oh, you want to see something neater? There's a patch plant. That's an ion channel! Isn't that neat? So that's the, the surface of a neuron, which is lumpier than you'd expect, right? And this is an ion channel. And there's the patch clamp connected to the ion channel. You know, if you're not excited by that, you probably should do something else. It's <laughs> like, that's really neat. This is relatively newish technology. It's, it's not something that people learned about 15 years ago. Because didn't like there was like one lab in the world doing it kind of thing. It wasn't a common thing. It's very cool. All right. So questions about that's how you're going to measure that because you can measure literally not just from individual. You can measure individual neuron ion flow, which is just mind-boggling. All right. Let's talk a little bit about how neurons. detect things and how they cause movement. So we have receptors for all kinds of different energy. For lack of a better word. That's not lack of, that's a good word. That's the right word. So the receptors for light in our eyes, we talked about that just the other day. We talked about how screwed up my eyes are. So we can detect color of light. See, it's not color. It's actually the wavelength of the light. Color isn't really a thing. It really isn't color. Oh, mind blown. So it's not really color. We just perceive different wavelengths of light reflecting as different colors. How do you know that the red that you see is the same as the red that I see? <laughs> I am so high right now. That's the kind of question we'll ask. We'll be asking daily from October 17th on. <coughs> Interesting, yeah, your test is the day that weed becomes legal. So after the test, don't get stoned. I mean, it's, you're all adults. Don't come to the class high, please. That would be a real mistake. All those discussions you have when you're high, you think you're deep, record one. <laughs> They're really stupid. Start your own podcast. Us high. Just nobody would listen to it. Because anyway, so I got white with sound. That's just changes in air pressure. That's all it is. 
okay? And we have receptors for, we call sound, we perceive it as sound, but it's actually just changes in air pressure. Or it could be water pressure, air or water, whatever. Smell. These is, this is just receptors for different chemicals floating around in the air. Which should always make you realize when you smell something, some of that stuff is literally in your nose. Yep. Just think about that for a second. When you smell something bad, like if, if somebody pukes and you go, oh, it smells awful. There's puke in your nose. Just think about that for a second. Or even worse, farts and shit and stuff. So I'm just saying. Doesn't make those mites in your eyebrows seem that bad, does it? So, <laughs> so there's different the taste. We have receptors for five receptors for taste. So these are all basically just cells that are sensitive to certain things. These are this is a chemical sense. So is this uh, taste? We have well, ones for uh, sweet. So that's sugar. Uh, salt. Yeah, I wonder why we need. I wonder why we need the sodium and chloride. Body needs sodium and chloride, so salt's important. Why? Do you, oh, glucose. Remember? Okay. So sweet. Sour. That's actually something that we perceive acids as being sour. I mean, you really shouldn't be putting large amounts of acid in your mouth. It's a giant mistake. No matter what kind of acid, like if you're just dropping acid, don't take lots. <laughs> Wait till we get to the stuff we talk about drugs. I tell you the story of the guy who discovered LSD. A lot of acid that guy. He lived to be like 90, so I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, yeah, so, so sour and bitter. Bitter is tends we, we perceive poisons as bitter. Not all things that we perceive as bitter are poisons, but we perceive most poisons, most, again, not all poisons as being bitter. So they may take the herbs, things like that. Um, we probably have, and we definitely have receptors, I'm sorry, for uh, umami, for sodium, for uh, uh, sodium glutamate. It's the flavor that comes from meat. Glutamate is the most common neurotransmitter in your brain. It also, by the way, people get all worked up with MSG. Um, there's MSG in cheese. That's what makes cheese taste good. MSG in tomatoes. Mushroom. It's called umami, which is a Japanese word meaning flavor. Or deliciousness. It's hard to tell. Because I don't speak Japanese. So I'm just different translations tell me either flavor or deliciousness. One of my former students who was from Japan told me deliciousness, and I believe her. You are allergic to MSG. Stop saying you're allergic to MSG. MSG is awesome. It makes food taste delicious. Uh, probably carbohydrates, but no, that jury's still out of that. They still have a receptor, but it looks like they have receptors for carbs. Now, all these things, we now can get in industrial quantities, right? So we can get refined sugar. We don't need that much. We can get tons of salt, lots of MSG. By the way, the LD50, the lethal dose, 50% of the population for table salt is, is like way less than it is for MSG. MSG isn't some freaking poison. Don't be frightened by MSG. It's your friend. It's delicious. I have it at home. It's sitting in a bag. It's a bag of white powder. People come, they look over at my spices. They think it's got cocaine in the corner. 
Now that's in a different jar. But <laughs> I kid, I kid, because I love. Touch. Touch is easy to understand because it's just um, pressure. It's a one-to-one relationship, pressure on your skin. So that's pretty simple to figure how that works. We have pain receptors. So they attack those injuries. We have cold receptors and, weirdly, hot receptors. You would think temperature would be done all at once, but no, we have cold and hot. So touch is actually, this is interesting, touch is four senses, right? So all that stuff, I I told you guys this early on in the course, when you were told, like, in grade four, you have five senses, you don't. You have way more than five. There's a downside to being a parent who knows these things, and then you get a kid who comes home and says, we have five senses. You go, you know, actually, you don't do that. Just let them do their homework. So touch is four senses. Light, brightness and color, frequency and intensity. Smell, we smell all kinds of different smells, right? So they look at all different senses in a way because they're detecting concentrations of different chemicals. Questions? This is a pretty good place to actually stop and deliver it. We'll finish this stuff up this time.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.